From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Just how transparent is the Colorado Capitol? Despite having one of the most stringent open meeting laws in the country, lawmakers still manage to do a lot out of the public eye. Then, finding unity through poetry. We are humanity, brothers and sisters across water and distance. Here we have found each other. Set aside our fear for friendship. Remember that we are family. Today is a new day to stand together. Foot Foot to to foot, foot, shoulder to shoulder. shoulder. In In beautiful beautiful colors colors and and shade. Then later, why knowing your breast density could save your life. The challenge is that a mammogram is a good test for some women, and it's not such a good test for other women. And there's a troll hidden in the hills west of Pikes Peak. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Just how transparent is the Colorado Capitol? Despite having one of the most stringent open meeting laws in the country, lawmakers still manage to do a lot out of the public eye. And it's led to a couple of lawsuits. Joining me now to discuss whether this is governance out of the public eye or giving lawmakers the room they need to maneuver are CPR public affairs reporters, Benta Berkland and Andrew Kinney. Thanks yep, for having thanks us. Thanks so much for having us. Andy, let's start with Colorado's open meetings law. What does it say? The law sets some pretty strict requirements for the legislature and other public bodies and how they have meetings. And, you know, first of all, it says that even if just two lawmakers are getting together to discuss public business, that technically has to be open to the public. Legally, they have to let whoever come in and listen to them talk. But then the requirements get even more strict if there's a larger number of lawmakers present. If you're bringing together a majority of, say, a committee or a majority of the Democratic caucus in the state house, or a majority of whatever group of lawmakers, you're supposed to give this public notice ahead of time, make it open to the public, and also produce meeting minutes. And two lawmakers, Representatives Bob Marshall and Elizabeth Epps, filed a lawsuit saying the parties are flouting the law. Benta, what is their argument? Yeah, well, uh, these lawmakers, they're both Democrats in their first year at the Capitol, allege there is a culture of secret meetings and back-channel discussions among both Democrats and Republicans at the State House. They say these should be open meetings or at least noticed publicly, like the law states. A lot of what they're saying is that these private meetings are happening for, like, say, the Democratic caucus. All the Democrats in the House want to get together and discuss something. Or maybe a few Democrats from a committee are getting together to discuss something before it goes through the whole public debate and vote process. And, you know, the plaintiffs say that's a pretty clear violation of the law, and they ask the court to order a stop to it. Andy, what are people saying about why caucus meetings and other meetings sometimes happen behind closed doors? The way one lawmaker phrased it to me the other day was that it's like the huddle before a football play that, you know, arguably they're working out their game plan for 
how are they going to handle all the political maneuvers that can happen when a bill actually gets debated on the floor or in a committee? You know, it can also be a time to air out grievances in the party and figure out conflicts in private rather than having these kind of Democrat on Democrat or Republican on Republican arguments out in public. And it could also be a way to work through just really sensitive issues without having public scrutiny while you talk about it. Here is Senate President Steve Fenberg. If it's public business in the sense of making decisions about policy that impacts the public, then yeah, of course that is done in a public setting. No decisions are made behind closed doors unless it's like, what are we going to order for dinner? But there are negotiations, there are meetings with stakeholders, with colleagues, and that's supposed to happen. I'll add that Colorado is actually pretty unusual for requiring, at least in the law, that those caucus meetings are supposed to be public. Uh, some other states allow the party meetings to happen behind closed doors, and I'm not aware of any that are actually quite as stringent as Colorado is. And it's not just meetings that they're taking issue with. There are also concerns about messaging apps. I think a lot of us can relate. We have text groups with coworkers. Mm -hmm. There are emails. It's not a meeting. Benta, why is this a problem for some? Well, the Democrats who filed this lawsuit allege that, for instance, during committee hearings, so this is the public hearing when people from throughout the state and even other parts of the country sometimes are in Colorado to testify on legislation. But during those public hearings, lawmakers use messaging apps to discuss the votes and the policy. And this is behind the scenes as the committee is happening. And that these messages are on apps like Signal that automatically get deleted. So there's not a record of it. And here's Democratic Representative Bob Marshall. And he talked to me about this when he filed the lawsuit a few weeks ago. We need to look at the Sunshine Laws in general in view of modern work that we do with electronics and all that. We shouldn't be hesitant to be talking to each other on electronic medium, um, but it should be retained and people allowed to look at what we're talking about. Now, I'm assuming that not every lawmaker agrees with Marshall that this is an issue. I've talked to several lawmakers who say, look, it just is not possible to legislate and work on compromises if they can't have discussions that are private. And I think Marshall may agree with that. It's just to what extent. And then they also worry that if everything is more public, it could be even more partisan and very hard to kind of hash out these thorny issues. Republican Representative Matt Soper says in regards to these messaging apps that, yes, technology has changed, but he says private conversations have always occurred at the Statehouse. The old days when you had a whip running down the aisle, telling everyone a bit of information that the public certainly didn't hear that from the floor unless they happen to be sitting on the floor or have really good hearing from the gallery. And so there's always going to be some communication that's just part of the business. Uh, certainly there should never be voting or arranged voting. And I just quickly want to add that Soper also sees messaging apps as a forum for lawmakers to maybe let off steam, express frustrations, just kind of joke around with each other. So, you know, you hear some lawmakers defending this as this is just the modern day equivalent of having a conversation in the cloakroom, having a whispered conversation on the floor. But I also talked to some experts in this area and they said the legislature should be careful about allowing that kind of thing and loosening the law because the more you enable these kind of private conversations, 
the more you let that move into the digital sphere, then you create more risk that they take advantage of that. The lawmakers use that new private digital space to do more of the actual decision making. Mm. Now, Andy, the issue of transparency and records is also behind a second lawsuit over how the majority party operates at the state capitol. Can you explain what's behind that? Yeah, Democrats for the last couple of years have used what I call this like anonymous polling system to kind of help them set their priorities as a group. Basically, every lawmaker gets to vote on all the bills that they're looking at that session, decide which ones are most important to them to get funding and to get passed. And then you put together all those individual lawmakers' votes and it can kind of show, hey, here's what Democrats are generally interested in. That can guide what Democratic leadership does during the session. And, you know, they've provided some information, some transparency about those polls, but what they haven't done is show us how did individual lawmakers fill out these surveys? What were the priorities of the individual lawmakers? So Advanced Colorado, which is a conservative kind of advocacy group, sued and argued that actually all those individual lawmakers' responses should be public record. Now, Benta, the legislature is out of session right now, but will any of these lawsuits change the way things are done at the Capitol? Potentially, yes. Uh, The lawmakers who filed the lawsuit on the open meetings and caucuses say they do hope it will change how the legislature does business, make things more transparent. That could mean a rule change in each legislative chamber or lawmakers may pass new legislation next session. I think it's still too early to say how it will eventually all play out. Right now, the Democrats are still in discussions with legislative leaders. I think they're all trying to avoid a public court hearing, if that's possible. And as for that uh, anonymous polling system Andy mentioned that prioritizes the budget spending, the Senate president said he doesn't expect the chamber to use that system. And we haven't heard about the House, but at least for the Senate, they say next session they're not going to use it. Andy, why do you think this is all happening now? I think that's a good question because these practices have been going on for a long time and you'll hear about it from both parties, but they're being challenged now. I wonder if part of this is a bigger debate about how Democrats should use this strong power that they've held for years now in state government. The Democrats who are filing the lawsuit who are challenging this practice seem to want to bring more of the party's decision making out into public. That could be a challenge to basically how the party operates. Um, you know, they could also gain some leverage by calling out the potential law breaking and asking the party to make changes. And then, you know, for conservatives and Republicans, some of them will admit that they've done similar things when they were in power, especially, but they're not in power right now. So by attacking Democrats for potentially breaking these transparency laws, even if they did it themselves, that can be a way to critique Democrats in the majority and kind of at least throw a stick in the works. Vinta, Andy, thank you for joining us and for this perspective. Thanks so much. Thank you. CPR Public Affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Vinta Brooklyn. When we come back, building a bridge of connection and community through poetry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It's been an awesome summer of music in Colorado with world-class music. You're listening to Flight of Festivals. Over to Boulder, Aspen, Breckenridge. Fascinating stories where the music is made. It was re-energized when the Colorado Music Festival made its home there in the 70s. And And all the ways you can experience concerts in Colorado's great outdoors. 
Find the details at CPRclassical.org. CPR Summerfest is sponsored by First Western Trust. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. I am the bridge, a poem by all of us, is an idea four years in the making. It was conceived by Papa Shah, a Senegalese man who followed family members to Colorado 25 years ago. He wanted to connect people from different affinity groups, American-born, Black, African immigrants, and people of Jewish, Hispanic, European, Native American, and Asian descent. About 50 people, some from each group, came together earlier this summer to brainstorm lines for the poem. And they did, over a potluck. At the gathering, they learned the horror, a traditional Jewish dance, and submitted poetry lines about their culture that spoke to all of them, showing their approval by applause. After they whittled down the submissions, a month later, a leader from each group met to rehearse with the help of a professional poet. They performed the poem at the Arvada Center this past weekend. CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassi was there. A fashion show by Senegalese designer Umu C was wrapping up at the Arvada Center, and a concert by popular Senegalese singer Baba Mal was about to start last Saturday night. It was all part of a day of African culture there. We're going to take you there and tell you about just one small part of it. It happened between the fashion show and the concert. A diverse group of people from the Denver metro area had volunteered to write the poem under the leadership of Papa Ja, and they spent the summer coming up with ideas and practicing. Last weekend, they gathered backstage at the center, finally ready for their debut. Ja, who's the founder of the African Leadership Group, spoke for a minute on stage about the experience and how he's long wanted to do something like this to connect people from different cultures who sometimes need help breaking the ice. My dream and my goal is to show this country and to show the entire world, when community come together, there's nothing that can stop us and start here tonight. So now it's my honor and my privilege to introduce you the amazing people of the Breaking Barrier poem, seven of them that's going to be performing the poem. Please give them a round of applause. Thank you and welcome. Seven people, one representing each affinity group, walked on stage. Some were wearing traditional clothing. They poured their hearts out as they introduced themselves to the near-capacity audience. My name is Jesus Quintana Martinez, and I use pronouns he, him, él. I'm representing Mexican and Latinos today. Bravo! And this project, this community poem that we all put together means a lot. I think there's a, a, an, a, an after after tonight. This really will bring a lot of unity to our communities, and I hope that it replicates in other, in, in other places, like uh, Papa Gia said, in other states, not only Colorado, but this has been an amazing experience. I'll pass it on to my peer. My name is Susan Levine. Uh, recently moved here from Connecticut. I have gotten very involved in African Leadership Organization, and it is my honor to participate in this initiative and be part of the Jewish Affinity Group. And I only look forward to more participation in breaking barriers and building bridges. Thank you. 
My name is Fama Ja. I am representing the African immigrant community, and I've been part of the African leadership group, you know, since birth. So being part of this poem has been such an empowering thing for me, and just to witness my peers embrace me in this poem has meant everything. So thank you. My name is Theo E.J. Wilson, uh, representing the Foundational Black American Group. And uh, we're just here building unity. Thank you for inviting me into this wonderful community, Papa Ja. Appreciate you. Nutugai Adali, Nusuntugai Rives, Numiagawan Ineski Gushkatan, Nahininawa Gushkatan Shaneh. I am representing the indigenous community. My name is Adali Rives. I am Nawa from El Salvador. Thank you. Pariushan Mehemet. Anyang Hatseo, which is simply hello. My name is Becky Hogan. I am wearing a traditional Korean hanbok and representing the Asian American community. I'm Philip Sneed. I'm also the president and CEO here. I represent the European American group, which is an awkward position to be in because our group has been responsible for so many of the troubles of all of the other groups. And, um, I think all we can do these days is to take responsibility, be accountable, be acknowledge the sins of the past, and try our best to make reparation. Whatever that means for you, I know it's a controversial term, but I think reparation of some kind, on some level, on every level, is important. So this is my little part of that, and I hope to do more. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Theo Wilson is the poet who wove all the submitted lines into a poem of about five minutes. And he's the one who started the performance before a full crowd outside. Our history did not begin in chains. I am African rhythms thumping in a breakdance battle in Brooklyn. I am foundational black American, born in the basement of the American dream. A lynch rope for an umbilical cord. Attached to a motherland we've long forgotten. The trauma of my ancestors is embedded in my DNA. So we sang. Our story is wild as a swing dance to Louisiana jazz. Our ancestor spirits carry us and our bones are made of stardust. Surviving the whips, chains, and segregation. Forced to build families and this nation without reparations. The sweat from our brow paved the ground for the red, white, and blue. A star-spangled noose choking the life out of my ancestors, and, and still, still we rise. The blood and bones I carry are rich, and yet they are seen as opposite. I am the people who have been hated, feared, misunderstood, and revered. I am the unstoppable, indestructible spirit of human love and resilience. I am, I am unapologetically black in all shades and rhythms. I am the bridge from yesterday's sorrows to a child's hope for tomorrow. We are the immigrants from the home of all humanity. Once a continent with no barriers and borders is still a cradle of hope for all. A land so often spoken of but seldom actually listened to. We, we are, are Africa. Africa. Six letters that speak to the diversity of its many nations. How can you minimize such a grandeur to such simplistic words, depictions, otherings? North, south, central, east, west, the beauty of the high peaks of Mount Kilimanjaro, to the rolling hills in Cape Town, the waters of the Niger and the vast of the Sahara Desert. This poem is yesterday and tomorrow, celebrating the past, present, and future, our ancestors. This poem is for the weak and strong. It will tell of history, 
I am the bridge to a world where the weak coexist with the strong until, until we, find we find a, a world, world where we all can belong. And speaking of belonging, us Latinos know about how borders can divide. Many have tried to put us down by saying we are unworthy of being here. But what would this country be without us? A mother earth, earth with an empty womb. womb. They, they try to keep us in the shadows, shadows forgotten, forgotten in history's tomb. tomb. But I am like an eagle crossing the borderless sky. I am mestizo. I am not from here or there. No soy de aquí, ni soy de allá. I am from everywhere. And I would rather die on my feet than to live on my knees. My Our dream, dream is for unity, justice, and peace amongst, amongst all nations, cultures, and creeds. My Jewish faith is about creating a world where we all can breathe in peace, always with an eye, heart, and mind on God's work, the Torah. And the other eye on persecution. Wary, careful, always looking over our shoulders. Are we safe here, and for how long? Fitting into American society, but also not assimilating only as far as society will allow. In the words of the ethics of our fathers, if I am not for myself, then who will be for me? But if I am only for myself, then who am I? And, and if, if not, not now, when? We are European American. We walk into a room white with a lowercase w and a knapsack filled with privilege. By our bootstraps, we capitalized, we colonized, we consumed and exploited people and earth. We called it freedom. This, this is, is the barrier we will break. The bridge we will build is made of recognition and restoration. Recognition of real justice and universal humanity. Restoration of a true destiny and vision for a common destiny and humanity. The bridge has planks of empathy and action. Empathy, empathy that, that binds us to each other's, other's lives and, and stories. Action that amplifies the quietest of voices and creates new histories. Understanding where we are so we can see what's ahead. Dismantling, Dismantling the, the systems, systems that, that oppress and, and cause dread. Because we are living courageously and creatively. I am Asian American, with hair as black as ink and eyes like coal, but everything around us looks light. We are small in stature, but we have hearts the size of giants, breaking stereotypes of the model minority. While building a future for our families. Discipline, hard work, and respect are hallmarks of the Asian community virtues that we share with the very best of humanity. Kamsa Hamnida. What, what I am today is because of you. And where we are today is on indigenous land. The Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho still sing on the wind. Can you hear them among the roar of the traffic? There's a sound that captivates our ears under the grass, beneath the soil, you have to get close. They, they are, are drums, drums, low and forceful. Like mother's heartbeat, steady, persistent. She calls to her children, remember, remember who you are. Your umbilical cord is your connection to the universe, the sun, the stars, the water, the land your people have walked for time immemorial. We are humanity. 
brothers and sisters across water and distance. Here we have found each other. Set aside our fear for friendship. Remember that we are family. Today is a new day to stand together. Foot to, to foot, foot, shoulder, shoulder to shoulder. shoulder. In, in beautiful, beautiful colors, colors and, and shades. We, we are the indestructible woven thread. We, we are the bridge to the world of tomorrow. Thank you very much. Let's give them a round of applause. Let's give them a round of applause. Becky Hogan is of Korean descent. She recited parts of the poem composed by the Asian Affinity Group. She retired three years ago after working as a consultant, and she's the widow of the former mayor of Aurora, Steve Hogan, who passed away five years ago. Together, they have five kids and stepkids. She wore an ensemble called the Han Book for the performance. So I saw you on Saturday night with your special... Korean Han Book. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. What's special about that particular ensemble of clothing? Korean Han Book is a traditional dress for a, generally speaking, for a more um, formal celebration. They would be worn at weddings, possibly even funerals, family pictures. It's a way to dress up in more traditional clothing. And a humbook is layers of clothing. So underneath I had um, a very starched kind of taffeta undergarment you know, we used to call them a slip. And then you put the dress around it so it is a wrapped dress that you tie slightly above your chest and then the jacket goes over it. You know, you can get an inexpensive one that is printed on, you know, for relatively, you know, nothing. Or you can get one, which I wore that evening, that is all silk and then it is embroidered. And so did you already have that, or did you get it specifically for this occasion? I actually, um, because there is a Korean woman that I know that actually rents these. You would be surprised how often they are rented. Again, like I was talking, that they're, they are for special occasions, and they're very expensive to purchase. But she was able to rent me the things that I needed for the evening. I rented the shoes even just because I wanted the very, very traditional wear. So I was traditionally Korean from literally head to the top of the little hat. She arrived at the Arvada Center around noon last Saturday for the final rehearsal. She said the easy part was getting dressed. The harder part was prepping her lines in the days beforehand. Tell me about how you got ready for the evening. You know, Elaine, I'm 65 years old, and I can't remember the last time I had to memorize something like that. <laughs> and while my lines were very few, it was still, you know, taxing for me to memorize. And honestly, I think that that was a challenge for all of us. How did you manage to memorize all those lines? Well, a couple of things. Our poet laureate, Theo, gave us some recommendations. He said, record it and just listen to it um, over and over and over again. For me, you know, I literally put a piece of paper with my lines by my bedside. So it was the first thing in the morning that I did and the last thing at night that I did. So I did my best to get my part done. And then you have to learn the, quote, all lines. 
and in the all lines, it's a matter of timing. So you would need to listen, you know, for those that come before you and then state the line together. So that's just how I did it. It was just repetition. Becky Hogan said that rehearsing paid off and that performing left her feeling like it had all been worth it. After you got done performing, how did you feel about how it went? I thought it went well. You know, you're always self-critical. I I knew that I wanted to do a little better, but I was really watching the audience and their response because we hadn't done this in any kind of public setting. Certainly we practiced in front of one another and we practiced, as you know, in front of the smaller audience. But you know, they're friends and family, and they love us. <laughs> so we really hadn't performed it in front of a, quote, live audience. So it was fun to watch how people responded. Some people were very into it. Some of people looked more inquisitive. You could tell some people identified with other messages that people were saying, and some identified with mine. Um, but I think that it was well-received. And I watched it on YouTube this morning. We got a link, so I was able to watch it this morning. And again, I think you're always more self-critical, and it's like, oh, no, I paused then, and I didn't even realize it. How did you feel overall? I was very proud, again, because I knew the work that had gone into it and the time and the effort for everybody to actually memorize their lines, be comfortable giving it, um, you know, not knowing how people would receive it. But I was very proud. I, I think that what we had said was so meaningful and it resonated with people. I could see that. And for me, Elaine, this experience really was getting to know the other people, both the people that we wrote collaboratively together, because some I have never met before, and then the people that were performing the poem, all of who I had never met before. And I would say that we walk away as friends. Becky Hogan, speaking with Elaine Tassi, CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter. Hogan is one of seven people who recited I Am the Bridge, a poem by all of us. Watch a presentation of the poem and read Elaine's reporting at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I think we've got time for one more song. Indy 1023 is proud to be a media partner of Levitt Pavilion. Thank you, Levitt. The season's underway with ticketed shows, plus over 50 shows open to the public. What a beautiful evening for some music outside. For tickets and the full concert calendar, LevittDenver.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado is among nearly 40 states that require doctors to notify patients about their breast density. Awareness about dense breast tissue could play a role in helping to detect and treat breast cancer. Dr. Gretchen Arendt is with the University of Colorado Cancer Center. We spoke in March. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Chandra, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Why is this so important in terms of managing personal health and wellness, and also on a larger scale, looking at this from a public health standpoint? So that is an excellent question. 
screening mammography has been recommended for several decades in order to detect breast cancer at the earliest possible stage when we have the best chance of curing it. And the cure rate for early stage breast cancer, particularly stage zero or one, is well over 95%. The challenge is that a mammogram is not the same test for all women. And the ability of a mammogram to detect breast cancer early depends on a woman's breast density. And many women don't know what their breast density is. In the specialty of you know, breast oncology, we think of four different categories of breast density. There's very low breast density, and then very high breast density, and then two categories in between. And for women who have the highest categories of breast density, a mammogram has a much harder time detecting breast cancer early because the cancer can be obscured by that dense tissue. So the breast density legislation requires the facility that performs the mammogram not only to tell a woman her mammogram is negative, but to alert her if she has the higher categories of breast density that the test may not be the best test to identify breast cancer and she should talk to her physician about whether any additional testing would be warranted. Mm. I think the legislation really empowers women to have a better understanding of the accuracy of a mammogram for their personal health. Yes, and when you think about this, you know, there's a lot of talk about getting a mammogram. And so I'm sure there's a sense of, of us going in and saying, hey, I did my part, I got a mammogram, and um, it said it was negative and, you know, yay me. But to find out that you could actually have it and it not be detected because of your breast tissue is, you know, pretty concerning. I think that comes as a surprise to some women. Uh, the other important factor relating to breast density is that it's actually a risk factor for developing breast cancer. Mm. So women who have denser breast tissue have a higher risk of developing breast cancer than women who have less dense tissue. So by alerting women that they have dense breasts, they can talk to their doctor and they can talk to a specialist if needed to get an understanding of how their breast density affects their lifetime risk of breast cancer. And we spend a lot of time with women who don't have breast cancer but have a variety of risk factors whether it's their family history or they've had a biopsy that shows something that may change their risk. But we can sit down with a woman, analyze her risk factors, and determine not only what her risk of getting breast cancer is, but then advise her what additional testing above and beyond a mammogram might benefit her. Now, I'm going to ask you about that testing, but first, walk us through this process. How would someone be made aware of their status that they have dense breast tissue? And would this only be discovered after a mammogram had taken place? Or are there other ways to determine this? Truthfully, a mammogram is the most objective way to assess breast density. A physical examination, when you go in for your annual checkup and your doctor performs a breast exam, you can perhaps get a sense of breast density, but it's not going to be objective like a mammogram. Mm. So before having a mammogram, you really wouldn't know what your breast density is. Let's talk a little bit about the notification process. 
how would someone generally be notified by their doctor's office or the medical facility? Would this be like a letter or an email? Would the insurance company send it? So mammography facilities are required by law to give women their mammogram results in writing. Nowadays, many mammogram reports are released electronically, but patients still get a mailed copy of their mammogram report. And it's important to read the entire report because in the body of the report, it will state whether the tissue is dense and mm -hmm. whether the patient should talk to their physician about additional testing. So if someone only looks at the top of their report and sees that their mammogram is negative and they don't read all the way through, they may not pick up on the fact that they also have dense breasts. And a negative mammogram, while that's good news, it may not be a great test for detecting cancer. Well, I have to admit that this stood out to me as a topic because I did get notification in the form of a letter, but there was sort of this sense of like, what next? Do you follow up? Do you call your doctor? Do you request other tests? I think it's hard for an individual to directly request other tests because somebody needs to actually order the test. Mm -hmm. A woman can request a screening mammogram without an order from a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. But any higher level breast imaging test, for example, Breast MRI is one of the tools that we might use as a supplemental screening tool in someone who has dense breasts. An order has to be placed for that by a physician or an advanced practice provider. So a woman who gets their mammogram report informing them they have dense tissue, I would advise them to speak to their primary care physician or their gynecologist who may have ordered the test Whoever ordered the test for them would be the first person to go to, to say, I received this letter, I'm informed that I have dense breast tissue, what do I do next? You mentioned these higher level tests. I spoke with Christina Soames, who is a breast cancer survivor. She's also on the board of directors for the Colorado Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation. It helps provide financial support for those in the midst of breast cancer treatment. She told me those higher level tests that you just referenced help save her life. In my own case, they said you have dense breast tissue. Only 10% of this is going to come back as cancer. So I don't think you have anything to worry about. And I don't have any breast cancer history in my family. So I was like, okay, you know, do a biopsy, do whatever you need to do. And so I was 100% expecting it to come back as not as breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So when the surgeon that did the biopsy called me back to say, you do have breast cancer, I was driving my car and I almost wrecked my car because I was so shocked and so stunned. What age were you uh, at this time? So I was 49, but there's plenty of women like in my support group or that we're writing grants to that are under the age of 35. You know, we have grant recipients that have five kids, they're early 40s. We just had a, a woman that applied for a grant that's, you know, 35 with two kids under the age of three. So there's so many younger women getting breast cancer and those women have a little bit more trouble because they're not supposedly at the age to be getting breast cancer. Mm. You know, if they don't have a lump, you're not supposed to have a mammogram until you're 40. If they don't have a lump, then there's no testing. 
So you obviously got the biopsy. It was determined you did have cancer. And what happened after that? So then I had um, surgery and they did a lumpectomy. And then they had to do another lumpectomy because my margins weren't clear. And then I started radiation. And a lumpectomy is when they just remove that portion of like a tumor? Yes. I, because I was out of Anschutz, I was very lucky that I got a brand new test at the time that was a genetic test. I was supposed to do chemo and I was all set up to do chemo. And actually, I was listening to NPR and I heard this whole segment on this test. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I called my oncologist and I said, what is mammoth printing? Can I get mammoth printed? And he said, how do you know about mammoth printing? And I said, well, I just listened to it on NPR. Wow. (laughs) And so I got the test, which allowed me not to have chemo. But if I hadn't gotten that test, I would have had chemo. And what exactly is mammoth printing? It's a genetic test that was very new. So I'm a five-year survivor. So at that time, it was a very new test that insurance companies definitely weren't paying for. But it's like a 72 gene test that is much more accurate than the other genetic testing they do. And just to be clear, you are considered one of those people to have dense breast tissue? Yes. So what is your advice for someone who either is going to get a mammogram or who has gotten one and are informed, yes, you have uh, dense breast tissue. What do you want them to do with that information? I mean, you have to ask a lot of questions. You know, if somebody gets notified of that, absolutely call your primary care physician and say, you know, I'd like an explanation of this. I want to know, is there anything else I need to do? You have to advocate for yourself. And the thing is, is like, because somebody is telling you that you need more tests or you don't need more tests or you have breast cancer, when you start going through treatment, you have to feel very comfortable and very confident that your oncologist knows what they're doing because you don't know, you know, you're not in the medical field. So it's so important to like, feel like you 100% trust the, you know, the medical personnel that are making the decisions for you because you have to listen to like what their treatment plan is, what their ideas are, what this, how it goes. But the biggest thing is to ask more questions once you get that notification. Really insightful reflections. Doctor, let's get back to talking about the insurance aspect. Are you familiar with the rights of a patient? I know you said it's very difficult for an individual to just call the insurance company and say, I want these tests. Um, Are there any rights that you have as a patient or is this really more of a discussion you have with your doctor that may or may not turn into a discussion with your insurance company? So that's always the, the challenge because when we go beyond a mammogram, the cost of testing starts to escalate. Mm-hmm. And this is why it's very helpful to have a formal breast cancer risk assessment completed where you know we can take into account the patient's age, her family history, her breast density, uh, her reproductive history. These are all factors that influence the likelihood of developing breast cancer. If a woman's lifetime risk of getting breast cancer exceeds 20%, and I will just state that you know all women have about a 15% chance of getting breast cancer. So 20% 
is higher than the risk that all women face. That's the typical threshold where we will consider supplemental screening. If we document that someone's lifetime risk is greater than 20%, then we can order an MRI or a screening ultrasound, whichever test we feel is the next best step, and submit it to insurance for authorization. Many insurance plans will authorize the test based on this risk assessment and lifetime risk calculation. If they deny the request, generally the physician or the PA or nurse practitioner can appeal that denial. And in many cases, it's really all about appropriate documentation. Have we done our diligence in documenting why this patient will benefit from higher risk screening? And in my experience, uh, most insurance companies will approve these tests if we've gone through an appeal process with the appropriate documentation. Doctor, is there any other advice you can offer for a person who receives notification that they have dense breast tissue? I think one important piece of advice, there's really actually two things I'd like to say. First is that don't think that that mammogram can't help you. Even in women who have dense breasts, there are changes that we can pick up that would be a concern for early breast cancer. So we wouldn't throw the mammogram out in someone with dense breasts because it can still be helpful. It's just that it may not be a good standalone test. The other important thing is that continue to be aware of what's normal for you. And so knowing what your breast texture is and knowing what's normal will help you figure out if there is a new lump or a new change in texture. And if you just had a normal mammogram, but you feel something, don't ignore that because it just mm -hmm. might be that the mammogram didn't show it because of the density. And you should get in touch with your doctor so they can help figure out what additional testing should be done to evaluate what you're feeling. Doctor, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Gretchen Arendt is a surgical oncologist with the University of Colorado Cancer Center. Christina Soames is from the Colorado Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation. We spoke in March. After a quick break, a troll will soon call the hills west of Pikes Peak home. But to find him, you'll need to search for him. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. News stories don't wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, CPR News helps you stay connected. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Hidden in the hills west of Pikes Peak, you may soon encounter a giant troll. The whimsical sculpture is the latest work by Danish recycle artist Thomas Dambo. It's the second of its kind in the state, joining one built a few years ago in Breckenridge. KRCC's Jessica Durant and Nikki Shapiro went in search of it. Jessica and I hiked down a rocky trail bordered by wildflowers and overlooking a big valley. Yeah, we're hearing pallets splinter, hammers crack, and drills buzz. Yeah. The sounds grow louder as we approach the site of something fantastical. 
This is the sound of a troll taking shape in an undisclosed location not far from the former mining town of Victor. Nikki. 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 Hi. I'm Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Danish artist Thomas Dambo is on stop four of a cross-country troll building journey. He says creating a troll with the help of volunteers is a little like baking a delicious tart and feeling that sense of accomplishment. So that feeling is really big when you spend like a thousand hours with like a hundred people cooking up a big troll tart. The creature's large head and surprisingly friendly face are complete, but the rest of its body is still being pieced together. It might be difficult to picture what it will look like when it's finished, but Dambo knows what to expect. The area's mining history is part of the troll's backstory, including abandoned mine shafts. The artist explains, It's crawling, pushing the rocks in front of it to cover up the little hole there because the troll fell asleep around 200 years ago, and then when it woke up after its nap, there's all these holes all over in the ground, and I was like, whoops, I need to fix this so nobody falls into the holes. There are more than 100 trolls from Dambo scattered around the world. As a self-titled recycle art activist, his medium depends on locally donated materials. Here, it's piles of wooden pallets pried apart to form the troll's hairy body. Dambo truly lives. The adage of one man's trash is another man's treasure. I think that if people go for a little hike and they see something big and majestic made out of trash, then maybe they'll understand that. And then maybe next time they throw out something, then they'll think twice about it because then they'll maybe think, hmm, maybe this would be a treasure for somebody. Dambo is traveling to 10 locations on this trip with a team of 12 professional builders. But volunteers are crucial to his work. And plenty of people are eager to help turn all that scrap wood into a troll. Around 20 volunteers a day lend a hand. Some, like Donna Hudson, have never done this sort of work before. Show me a power tool, how to use it, and I'll give it my go. (laughs) Others are hoping it improves the community's connection to the region. I think it's kind of broadened our sense of what it means to live in this area. So we're not, you know, just us guys. (laughs) That's Autumn Wallace, a third-generation resident of Victor. She's also a member of the Gold Camp District Impact Group, the nonprofit that invited Dambo to build the troll. They hope that this new project will contribute to tourism in Victor. Longtime area resident Gary Horton agrees. I think it's going to be pretty neat, you know. Everybody goes to Cripple Creek for gambling and whatnot. Nobody stops in Victor, which is actually kind of nice, but at the same time, We can use an influx of new people. While Dambo's work may affect people across the world in different ways, his message is simple. I think that we all need to have magic in our lives. And I think we all need to understand that me, us, we, with our hands, can change the world. The troll's location isn't being advertised. So anyone who wants to see the sculpture will have to search for it. But that's a part of the experience. And don't worry, it's not going anywhere. I'm Nikki Shapiro. And I'm Jessica Duran, KRCC News. You may find pictures of the troll and read about the project at krcc.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.